Welcome to Face to Face, the podcast which pairs creative people with the legends who've inspired them. In this episode, author Gabriel Kreis meets Irvin Welsh. Published in 2020, Kreis' first book is an autobiographical novel. Set in London, Who They Was tells the story of a young man who juggles an English degree with a criminal lifestyle, one that involves robbery, drug dealing and serious violence. Kreis' short stories have been published by The Face and Vice, and like Irvin, his debut novel was long-listed for the Booker Prize. Irvin Welsh was born in Scotland and he grew up in housing schemes in Edinburgh until he moved to London in the late 70s, where he embraced the punk scene. It wasn't until he moved back to Edinburgh in the late 80s that he wrote his debut novel Trainspotting about the city's heroin scene. The film was released in 1996 and it's widely recognised as an era-defining classic. Welsh has written at least 13 novels, four short story collections, 10 screenplays and two theatre productions. During their face-to-face conversation, Kreis and Welsh discuss parallels between punk and grime, their shared passion for boxing and their resentment towards the literary establishment. This episode was recorded at the Standard Hotel in London. Gabriel, it's an absolute fucking pleasure to be with you today, mate. No, thank you. It's an honour, Irvin. It's an honour. So, Irvin, like, you left Edinburgh for the London punk scene in 1978 and... I was just wondering, because the punk scene was like this nihilistic musical scene, it was like very rebellious, it was rooted in this in this kind of attitude of fuck the system and everything. How much did the musical scene that you got into have an influence on your writing, if it did? It was everything. I mean, um, I remember like I heard Anarchy in the UK and I got the black copy of Anarchy in the UK and I was working doing this sort of electrical TV mechanics kind of job and fixing old tellies and I... And as soon as I heard that record, I just thought, my days are numbered here. I'm off, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was lucky that I had relatives in London, like my auntie lived in Southall and Middlesex. You meet your own tribe there, you know. I mean, I met my own tribe and um, moved into uh, a squat in Shepherd's Bush. And I had a period where I went, I just had this fucking mad heroin, fucking brick kind of madness. I thought, I've got to get out of this. And I went quite straight for a while. And then Acid House came up and that kind of, Took on, took on a lot of the same punk ethos to do it yourself and yeah. sort of uh, kind of uh, just a, a real proper scene. And I just went back for it again. You know, I just cast off the, the straight life that I'd built for myself quite yeah. painstakingly yeah. and jumped in again to this thing. You know, so it's probably, if I hadn't have had the excitement of punk, I wouldn't have been entranced by Acid House and I wouldn't have just uh, thought, this is the time you've got to fucking do something. You've got to actually start work, like, you know? Yeah, no, it's really, because it's, it's really interesting because I see like a parallel with the, the punk scene. Obviously, I wasn't born at that time, but I see a parallel with that in terms of grime music. So when I was growing up, like grime was, right now grime is really popular. You see grime artists at festivals and all that. When I was growing up, there was no such thing. Yeah. It was only in youth clubs. There was like the the sense that we had as MCs is none of us are ever going to make it. We're never going to make any money off this. It was proper underground. It was even banned from all the West End clubs. And I remember like growing up, there, there was not one grime rave that I went to that it didn't end early because of violence. Someone yeah. getting stabbed yeah. up, someone getting bottled. I even remember in South Kilburn, there was this big rave in the OK Club and like in the middle of the rave, people just started firing like shots into the ceiling and shit. And like everyone had to like, you know, run out of the venue and all the artists were jumping off stage and shit. And I think that had like a a big, obviously, cause that was like the culture I was growing up in. Yeah. I had a big influence on the kind of energy of my writing and, and kind of the and world it, of I course, wanted to And portray. it's the last, it's the last 
basically kind of indigenous British working class youth culture, isn't it? Yeah. There's nothing else that's come after that. Yeah. And it was it was genuinely underground. I mean, I mean, I was in America and it kind of it passed me by. I was fascinated by it. And I was obviously too fucking old to do a third jump into the jump yeah. into the, the, the cultural kind of cold face again. <laughs> but um it's uh and it's like, I mean, uh, what about the scene now? Is it, has it become commercialised and mainstream? Yeah, right? I think Graham's, Graham's become commercialised and mainstream. I mean, for better or for worse, isn't it? it can, I guess there's, you know, there's benefits and, and there's negatives about it. I think the only negative, to be honest, is like maybe the purity of, of like making music just for the expression where you've got absolutely, you, it's not even that you have no sense that you're going to make it, it's that you know you're not going to make yeah. it. That's how we we all felt. We are like, we know we're not going to make it. This is just us getting shit off our chest. Very violent lyrics, like a, a very intense energy. And I'd say even now, like UK Drill is the development of it. And, and it's, you know, UK Drill is kind of, um, I'd say rooted in the expression of gang culture in London. The only thing that's different to that and the grime scene that I was in when I was like 15, 14 and that is that you can make it now with UK Drill. Right, you can get rich right, of it. Can, yeah. Whereas for us, it's like the only guys who were getting rich were like selling drugs and doing robberies and whatever. I, I think it was a bit like that with punk because everybody was in a band. I was I was in loads of them and I got, you know, I had no musical skills. I had no keyboard or fretboard and skills. So I was always the first one kicked out. Band basically, and it didn't really matter. You know, you, mm. don't, you 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 didn't really do it to to with any idea that you would be successful. And in fact, was you know, if your mates' band suddenly kind of became successful or had a record in the charts or something like that, you thought, "Fuck, that's quite a shock." Still, even because there was so many punk bands, just everybody was in a punk band. Everybody was playing um, their songs, these kind of three chord pieces. You know, terrible songs, but you could see that there was a there was a division between. People who's, you know, even in these crap bands that you stuck together in a bedroom, yeah, you could see that there was some people who were just a bit better and a bit more adept and a bit quicker at picking things up, and they were going to kind of, you know, they were going to rise in a way. You know, do you think like the aesthetic of like the rawness, that rawness that you're describing of like people not being necessarily that skilled but just having this energy? Do you think that that's kind of what? went into your writing in terms of like not being too concerned with whether or not you're pleasing people, whether or not you're sticking to like literary conventions and all that? Or Yeah, definitely. Because um, it was like I had no experience in writing a book, mm -hmm. you know, so I just thought um, I've got to sit down and do this. It's the last chance I've got to do anything creative because yeah. I've fucked up music. I've got nowhere with it. I've been at it for years. I've got nowhere. Um, I had started DJing, but it was just a, it was a hobby. It was getting out at night and all that, having a bit of fun. What laugh. music were you DJing? I was doing soul, mainly kind of disco and soul. And, um, but uh, I was sort of like, I was I was kind of edging into techno. The techno records started to come over. The Detroit stuff started coming over. Yeah. But it was mainly, it was kind of mainly disco and so it was mainly sort of like chic and all that sort of stuff. What I did do well, I found, what I believed I did well anyway, and when I was, when I was in bands was to write songs. And the, the, the basically the, I was writing ballads, you know, which are just stories, you know, so the, the stories came out of the songs and, um, 
the novel was just like an attempt to just stick all this together and to yeah. write something that was was going, you know, that could you know, hopefully would get published. That was just and people would be able to read it. That was just my the extent of my ambition for it. Yeah. yeah. And do you feel like <clears throat> there's this? You know, everyone knows you for train spotting, obviously, and people talk about there'd probably be the first work that they talk to you about in it. My fa- what my favorite book of yours is. Um, I mean, I love train spotting, but my favorite book of yours is Marabou Stork Nightmares. And there's this very interesting thing I found in that book where the central character, Roy Strang, he slips into Scott's dialect whenever he's resisting the interference of of the nurses who are like trying to administer care to him and everything. And yet in his dream, in his like fantasy, he speaks in this like very conventional, pristine English. And I wondered if obviously this might be, you know, people people always, I think, sometimes overanalyze art and overanalyze mm-hmm. literature. And it's like, you know, in this weird academic way of, is this an expression or projection? <laughs> and it's like, no, nah, fuck that. It's just words on the page, isn't it? This is just how I chose. But I just wondered if it's like, that's a reflection of how the the Scots dialect that you chose is kind of in itself a resistance against convention and expectations yeah. of people. It was right? almost like a kind of, you know, it was like his kind of, anti-imperialist colonialist thing kind of kicking in you know that was you know and it's like uh, it's what they call like um in like working class scotland in schemey scotland for want of a better term like uh you know housing estates called housing yeah. scheme scotland they call it the, the, the daft laddie defense when you're sort of create when you're confronted with authority it's just like uh Oh, we we were just dealt to come here. Eh? Yeah, we didn't again. It wasn't me. Eh? I didn't again. You know, so you just bounce into that as a sort of defence against the, you know, it's like, it's like um, and it's just that whole thing that you know, it's like the 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 way the state is, the whole mechanism of the state is that active resistance is crushed. So you kind of the you you rely on kind of um, subterfuge basically mm-hmm. to get anything that you you want out of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I f- I find that as well in in literature. Sometimes there's this expectation of of fulfilling certain conventions to be recognised by the kind of literary scene. And me personally, it's like I don't write for you know the the middle class white literary scene. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not it's not even you know sometimes people say who do you write for? Well, I've got two answers for that. I'd, I write for everyone, and then I write for the strippers, drug dealers, gangbangers like everyone in prison, the killers, like, you know, as in like, I'm not trying to appease like the the literary scene that wants kind of nice stories, conventions of narrative arcs and redemptive redemptive narratives. Partly as well, because that doesn't reflect the reality that I've experienced. Yeah, I mean, you can can only write what you write, basically. You know, the thing that... um, it's like, and I, I, I kind of, I don't have any audience in mind at all. Yeah. You know, I, just, I mean, it's to me, it's a fucking selfish thing, mm-hmm. basically. You know, it's a purely selfish expression of what's going on in my head and what my experiences have been and what I've been kind of, you know, exposed to yeah. at the time. You know, and it's because it's so subconscious, you don't really know. You know, what I mean, you have you have clues basically. So, what was the the catalyst to make you write the book? What was the thing that got you? got you into it to be honest with you like I had the idea for the book I wanted to write this book from when I was living that lifestyle and the way that I like originally what was happening is I was living in in this gang culture like this heavy kind of criminal gang culture and specifically as well it's like it's I think it's quite interesting in in terms of people understanding it because people think about gangs just in terms of postcodes 
but I was involved more in a robbery gang, like robbing drug dealers, robbing rich people for diamonds and Rolexes and all that shit. And, and when I was going through those experiences and I was also studying English literature, and it's not like I wasn't living a double life or being chameleonic, that was just the reality that I was in, um, which, I, which I do understand and accept as being very, very unique, but it was all, it was all 100 in it. Um, I used to write notes about all these experiences that I was going through, like on the backs of anything, you know, in, in exercise books, on the backs of probation reports when I'd go to court. I'd even like record conversations in that way because I'd have mad conversations with people and I'd know that one day I'm going to write this book about it, but I'll forget these conversations there. I think conversations are sometimes the hardest things to remember, whereas, you know, So did you do the blogging and the thieving to finance a degree? Was that sort of... Like I, I didn't do it to finance the degree, but I did, and I remember like but it was a good, it was a good choice to make, though, wasn't it? it was <laughs> yeah, quite, still, uh, yeah, it's it's a, a good, good use of criminal proceeds. Yeah, still. it's a fucking great like, use of criminal proceeds. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I mean, what was interesting about it was that I basically like accumulated all this material, like these piles of sheets of paper and everything. It was only later, like, you know, 10 years later that I sat down or almost 10 years after the fact that I sat down and was like, let me write this novel. And I had this massive pile of material, which was basically the, the bulk of the I book. I was the same. All I could do when I was on gear was write these journals and we just thought, yeah. and I, I realized, you know, I thought, I, real, I, I realized it was just all nonsense. It was like, it was all self-aggrandizing shit, yeah. making me out to be the fucking big hero, you know, and everybody else to be a cunt, which is kind of, it's probably true, but nobody, <laughs> no, but nobody else is really interested, you know what I mean? That's, so, proper, that's so, probably funny, so, yeah. that's probably funny that you say that, because I remember that. It was that. again, it was 10 years later, it was the same thing, you know, you, yeah. have, to, you have to have that bit of distance from it to look back and reflect, 100%. It's funny that you say that as well about those, those journals and the voice in those journals, because I remember when I sat down to write the book, I remember I found these, these like the prison letter paper that you get in, in Felton, which is like, you're only allowed to write on prison issue right, paper, yeah, yeah. Isn't it? you can't yeah. just get blank sheets of paper. And I remember finding this rant about how like, you know, we're, this, it was like this kind of pseudo Nietzschean rant about we're the wolves and, and society are the sheeps and all this. And I was reading it and right. I was like, what the fuck are you on? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like what? <laughs> but it was like, it was true. And then the other thing was in writing the novel as well. I was like, because writing the novel, I'm trying to open the window for people to understand the mind frame of a nihilistic teenage early 20s gangbanger now if i were to add an objective well like that's it, why you can't censor your past self in a way you 100%. Know, your, your past self's there to inform you you 100%. know and, and, to, and to write the book it's like and that's a that that's to me has always been the two contradictory things about being a novelist you know you have to have the the, the egotism to do it in the first place yeah. to think that somebody yeah. else is going to care yeah. about what you're right but you also have to have the ability to get past yourself, course, you know, and, and to get past previous selves and course. all that as well. You, you, you know? can't, it's like, you can't constantly try and, especially when you're trying to express those realities, you can't suddenly start adding like objectivity and insightfulness yeah. because it's yeah. like, what are you going for? Are you going for the yeah. raw reality of that mind frame? Yeah. Or are you trying to provide a story with, you know, loaded with these insights that will quickly reassure yeah. the reader, oh, by the way, don't worry, this isn't me. This isn't how I think, which is bullshit. Yeah, That's not I mean, true. it's just, you know, you can, you can go and 
do degrees in sort of uh, creative writing if you want to do all that shit, like, you know? Yeah, I mean, so no shade on writers who've done creative writing, but to me, it's like, I don't believe in that, innit? It's like, yeah. you, you either are a writer or you're not, and yeah. and that, that shit comes from within, like. Well, I, I had to, when I moved to America, I had to, to teach creative writing in Chicago for six months to get yeah. my visa. And it was, you know, it's like, um, it was, all these young kids who are kind of suburban young kids and they could write beautiful sentences, but everything, every story was there. I remember back in high school, you know, yeah. fucking Bryson Ellis did that when he yeah, was 21. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to do yeah. it. You don't need to do it again. And I got into trouble with the Dean because I said, look, you guys, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your parents' money, you know, go to fucking... You know, steal a car, go to Mexico, an eight ball, pick up a hooker, get, you know, yeah. get, the, get the clap, fucking give it yeah. to your fucking brother's girlfriend or something. Have something to fucking write about, yeah. you know. Yeah. Have him chase you with a gun or something. Have something to write about, you know. And then you had um, <clears throat> the ones that had a real life, you know, the, the late 20s. They were like kind of, there's so many interesting tales to tell. And they had this, but they had this idea that uh, we have to write nice things about kind of, hills and landscapes yeah. and so you live in fucking the south side of Chicago for fuck's sake yeah. everybody you know has been fucking shot yeah. you know right about that yeah, yeah. 100% yeah. 100% it's interesting that you say that as well because it's like it's this weird thing that like about the the aesthetic of art or whatever and people have this idea I think now even more so than ever that artists whether they're writers or, or whatever have to be these like moral paradigms like representing some moral high ground and one of my favourite artists is Caravaggio and like he painted these incredibly beautiful paintings, right? And he was like a proper bad boy, like as in, in fact, yes. in fact, all his documents, pretty was, much yeah. all his documents were burnt. So all we really know about him is from his arrest record, which is like yeah, crazy. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah, I know it's mad impressive, <laughs> isn't it? It's just like endlessly getting in brawls and knife fights, and then painting these incredibly powerful paintings and and. Where does the power in his paintings come from? It comes from the agony of this yeah. lived experience yeah, and definitely. this self-destructive nature and that. And it's like... In general, I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I feel I have to work, you know, I mean, I have to do stuff. Otherwise, the devil makes work for idle hands. Yeah. You know, I just, you know, it's like, um, I just disrupt everybody else's life, you know, yeah. and if I don't just fucking get on with something and just yeah. focus, you know, get going. And I think, that, you know, the age I'm at now, you think that it would have... that orange would have waned a bit, but it's kind of stronger than ever. You know, yeah. that pull to self-destruction is stronger than ever, but the coping mechanisms are much stronger as well. You know, they're yeah. all in place now, you know? So there is that kind of um, urge to, that destructive urge and that self-destructive urge that you, when you kind of channel it, that's the essence of creativity, I think, in some yeah. ways. Like, yeah. yeah, definitely. What do you think made you get into boxing? Did you get into boxing in the States? No, but what happened was that I've always hated this fucking false dichotomy between sport and art. Yeah, that, yeah, hundred you percent. Know, because like, I was always yeah. into sport, I was always into art, I was always like kind of, um, and I was like, uh, I was like the Ponzi kid who wrote poems for girls that he fancied at, sc and, at school and all that. And uh, I basically got dragged, I got dragged along to the boxing club by my cousins mm -hmm. to toughen me up and. Uh, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't particularly good at it, but I liked it. I really enjoyed it. And um, and same with football, you know, I, I loved playing football. I was a terrible footballer, but I loved playing it, you know? Yeah. And then it's like when, um, when basically, you know, the sort of the kind of drink and drugs and, sh and um, shagging and all that kind of stuff kicks in, takes over. Uh, I just lost, you know, I lost a bit of interest in the sport. I kind of lost my way in it. 
uh, for a bit. And um, but then when I came out of all that, I thought this is just a way to get myself back on track and give me that mental discipline again. That, yeah. um, and it's helped so much with writing. I think it really. I think boxing and writing just they just complement each other beautifully. You know, because if you're a writer, you know you have, you let your mind spool all over the place. Yeah. You know. And you just, you know, but with boxing, you just have to get it all back in. You've got to be right in the moment. Otherwise, yeah. you're going to get punched in the face, basically, you know? Of course. So, so it's like, um, it's just, they, they, they just work perfectly together. Yeah. Yeah. I find that as well. Like, I found that, you know, like going to the gym doesn't, doesn't challenge me enough personally i find like lifting weights like very very boring and tedious yeah, whereas yeah. going boxing like it's like i'm forced into the challenge and even when it's like even when it's not sparring if it's just like training yeah. with a, on a in a one-on-one -on -one session like the way in which the trainers will will yeah, push you and they'll push you right. until you and you push yourself until yeah. you smash yourself to fuck of course, basically. Of course, okay, you, know, you walk out there with nothing left yeah. yeah and you want that kind of training where it's like yeah. you're not getting pushed gently you're getting yeah. pushed in this raw way where you feel almost like you're being challenged and undermined and then you're like fuck that but, like, but you know you can you know you, and you know you can do it because it's, it's short bursts as well you yeah. know the whole three the three minute round structure you just say i can pour yeah. everything into especially in the last minute you know just fucking smash this bag and just go fucking nuts yeah, like, you know, yeah. Now I'm gonna have the break. Yeah, get back into shape for it again. Yeah, yeah no, it's a, it's a great tradition. I mean, Hemingway is like the one who's who's most known for it, but it's like, yeah, man. I think like I think there's maybe some some writers out there probably who need a punch in the face still. Yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, it's like I mean, there's, there's many paths up the mountain, and everybody has their own stuff sort of um, going on. But um, there is a whole there's a whole bunch of um, precepts about what um what literature should be and what writing should be and yeah. it is all very like imperialistic upper middle class kind of sort of stuff and it's percolated into this um this very kind of com comfortable sort of north london bourgeois sort of yeah. liberal kind of thinking as well yeah yeah i think also there's a lot of now as well there's a lot of this mentality of box ticking of making sure that yeah. literature fits into yeah. certain trends so if for example environmentalism is a big thing that's like going around we'll suddenly get a raft of books coming out about environmentalism and and or or not even necessarily the books coming out like that but reviewers will frame it within that context oh this is a commentary on this and it's like it's couldn't agree more you know, i'll tell you what i mean i've, I've seen i've dope. seen it change since i've you know obviously the, the, but i think it's retail it's, it's mainly dominated by retail. And yeah. When I first started writing books, it was like um, you basically just wrote fiction or non-fiction, you know, and now you write into genre, you write kind of uh, romance, thriller, crime, uh, yeah. historical and all that, and you're writing into these marketing holes because yeah. it makes it easier for them to sell. Uh, and uh, I think it's that that starts the whole box-sticking process. Yeah. But I think the other thing is the internet as well. It's like... Um, and it's like probably why you can't really get sort of punk or acid house or grime um, kind of sort of happening now, you know, in the way that in the way that these things used to. Because I mean, the the, the example I always give is like um, it's a fucking hypothetical thing, but if you get two bunch two bunch of guys from a different set of um, a diff two different parts of town, and what they're they're wandering around and they see these trainers in the sh the, the store. And one says, you see there's red trainers, and one, the hardest guy in the band says, fucking red trainers, they look cool. So everybody, in, they've all got red trainers. 
And uh, but you get the other group, the guys are saying they look at red trainers. That's a fucking ponce's fucking bullshit. Like you know, so they've all got white trainers. They meet up the town and they just have this fucking big row. Then they get ten years older, they laugh about it. Some of them they talk about it and all that. Memories to fight over trainers. But the thing about that is, it's all contested in culture. It's all contested at street level. You know, everybody's got an input into what that culture is. Yeah. And you know, it's violently contested, but it's contested now. It's all handed down by Instagram. Yeah. Some fucking pop star or some Instagram yeah. sort of um, influencer. Influence, yeah. Influencer yeah. is going to say like, uh, "Oh, red trainers are absolutely fabulous." They're yeah. in, you know, and everybody's got red trainers, and all the kids like. Um, they just feel disenfranchised. Like sixteen-year-olds will go like uh, they just want to fit in so badly, you know, yeah. with each other. They'll go like, "Oh, I have to have red trainers. You yeah, know, I can't have anything else." So there's nothing. So you know, it's like they'll all sit sit there with the red trainers and they'll be online doing their their stuff and all that. But there's nothing for them left in the culture. It's all yeah. being ransacked by the by this by this whole idea of uh, you know it's not street culture it's the media culture yeah and no, 100 i totally agree with you and I, I see that as well in terms of like the it's it's a crazy like encouragement of materialism as well because it's like when like growing up in in south kilburn and like i lived in south kilburn for you know about 17 almost 18 years and that and it's like i've never seen so much Louis Vuitton, like diamond yeah. watches, diamond grills, all that culture in it, like as I've seen on the block there. Whereas yeah. it's like, you go to Chelsea, you go to Sloan Square or whatever, and it's like, you don't see people like walking around with like Louis V belts, Louis V jackets, yeah. diamond watches or any of that, because it's like, there's this, there's this need almost to express success through materialism yes. because yes. of what we're influenced yeah. by. And also I find it quite funny with, with the, the box ticking thing as well of like the the culture of how people also jump on trends there's also i feel a trend for activism but the reality that i perceive is this it's like do people watch on mass documentaries about for example the war that's still happening right now in yemen and the huge famine yes that's like killing bare children but it's just slightly slipped out of our news yeah. screens do, are people collectively watching that and talking about it no but they're collectively watching Love Island and jumping on that trash yeah, yeah, and like promoting it. But then suddenly if, if another wave of activism comes from a celebrity, people will jump on that. And there's this mad like symbolic and kind of empty aspect to that because it's all driven, like you say, by Instagram, by internet culture. There's a lack of like purity in terms of people's intentions and authenticity as well. Do you ever feel like an outsider, not just as an artist and a writer, but in, in as a general, human being, yeah. yeah, all this sort of nothing, and that's like, um, and I really wouldn't want to feel any other way, mm. you know. I've just been you know, like that. I kind of uh, I enjoy this. I don't feel like, um, and it's that thing. It's that um, I'm not really uh, the great thing about being a writer is that <clears throat> it is fundamentally selfish. You're not looking for approval, not just from like the literary establishment a lot, but also from your your own friends and families and loved ones as well. You know, you're not looking for them to approve of what you do, you know. Yeah. Basically, you know, it's a my attitude to them. It's like, I love you, but get to fuck. You yeah. know, it's like, uh, you know, this is this is my fucking creative space and I'm doing my shit in it. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, that's the purest way in which art can find an expression, I think, like, is, is to do it like that. And I think maybe what's stifling art, especially I think in, in writing, is maybe people's need to, like, people's maybe not people's need but people's anxieties that they need to appease you know 
popular ways of thinking or they need to appease certain kind of audiences or whatever and it's like fuck that it's like take it how it is well you know you it's know. it's the way that uh, a lot of the i mean I, there was a whole wave of really good writers that in scotland that came out after us but because of the the situation was different the whole industry was different they, were, they had to write into all these marketing holes. So they all became like crime writers or thriller writers. And yeah. um, these guys were just writing books, basically. You know, they were writing, yeah. inter- you know, they're writing interesting books. But um, if you call it a crime uh, book, it'll sell more, basically, because mm. kind of genre just sells and it's, it's easily, it's easily uh, marketed. And then you have this whole industry of self-justification, like, oh, but um, genre spirits are, you can do interesting things with genre. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like you can do subversive things, and you can to an extent. Like, yeah. you know, but why should you have to? Why shouldn't you just be able to, you know, why should you have to try to um, to, to to sort of uh, circumvent uh, a sort of um, a whole sort of, an industry, basically, a whole kind of publishing system. You know, why can't you just write what you want to write? No, one hundred. I was I was at um, Cheltenham Literary Festival the other day, and someone asked me, "What do you write?" And I just said, "Literature." Like, and yeah. and it's not because I'm being ambiguous or broad in my answer, but it's because I write literature. And my book was labelled, I guess, categorised, and this like proper relates to what you were saying about this obsession with multiple categories. My book is categorised as auto fiction, which I guess is shorthand for autobiographical fiction. And I fucking hate that. Because, yeah, because there's horrible. a First of all, there's a huge tradition going back, you know, 200 years easily of the autobiographical novel for a start. Like, and also whether or not you're, you're you know crossing the lines or the boundaries of fiction non-fiction or whatever as long as it's a novel as long as it's a work of literature that is all it is it's just but literature. that's that's again that's the way trying to to negate you you know yeah. what i mean it's like trying to say that um oh this person's working class they're not fucking you know all they can do is write their, their biography and their life yeah. experiences they've got no creative imagination yeah. at all to sort of to augment that or to you know so yeah that, that's that's a thing that's um it's you know it's it's a it's a very common thing by the gatekeepers of literature. I mean, I had that all the time when Trainspotting came out. Yeah, I mean, I think as well. It's also partly to do with people's, I guess, in terms of the audience, people's need to pigeonhole as well. And I find it interesting because I wonder, I wonder sometimes what you know others expect of me for my second book because it's like I've written this first novel the first novel is fully slanged out it's I've written the novel basically how me and my boys talk so that you know as soon as you open the first page it's like you've just walked into the room in the middle of a conversation and then it's not like it's not like you've walked in and you're just like overhearing it it's like you've walked in and then I see you I grab you by the throat sit you down next to me and it's like boom (laughs) you're gonna listen to this shit now innit yeah and like you're here for the ride but for my second novel, I'm writing a novel about transgenerational trauma, about how the traumas of history get handed down between generations and also what's led up to, to this point in time in human civilization. And it's like, I wonder if people, are they, are they expecting with that book to open it and oh, it's going to be written in London slang? Because if, right, if right. they are, it's like, nah, I can do a lot fucking more than that. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Brilliant. So uh, how are you getting on with it? What progress? Oh shit, it's driving me mad, isn't it? Like, <laughs> like, like all great, that's good, like, all that's great good. work. Like, that's you good, know, it's bro. like, sometimes I feel like I'm losing the plot, isn't it? It's like- It's a good thing. It's a good uh, thing. James Kelman, who won the Booker Prize, said yeah. to me, "So just keep fucking writing. Don't stop. Just keep fucking doing it. You know? yeah. But I was kind of doing that anyway, because it's like, uh, I was so, when I'd written Trainspotting, 
I was so overjoyed that I could actually do something, you know, because I've, I've fanned around for ages trying to do this creative stuff, you know, but mainly in music, and nothing came off for me. Uh, and with train spotting, every, everything just happened very quickly, you know, it was published by the first publisher that I sent it to, which was the biggest publisher in London. It became a cult book, then a bestseller, then a big stage play and a film. It was just like, just, yeah. you know, I just didn't have to really, I thought, fuck me. Yeah, I found the keys to the kingdom, you know. Yeah. So, I was just so motivated that I just I finished the Acid House. Um, right after it, I just never stopped, and I wrote all this. I'll write these stories as I'm going along. So I finished the Acid House, and then um, when I, I thought I'm going to write this, I, I just got so fucking full of myself. I thought, you know, this is brilliant, and I can do anything now, you know. And I wrote this book, which was a fucking disaster. It was terrible. And the publisher said, you can't fucking, I mean, I'm not going to publish this fucking wank. Man. You're just showing off, basically, you know, yeah. and I was, you know, you're showing off like, you know, just write the book that you want to write. Yeah. You know, and that's what he just gave me that advice. And that's when I wrote Marabou Stock Nightmares, which yeah. is one of my best books. And the yeah, other it's bits. Banger. It's a banger. Well, the other bits are just, you know, the stuff that I've got, I, I cannibalized them and I took the best ideas out of them and yeah. reused them. Because you always, always, if it's good, it will come back. Of course. You know? Of course. I think it's interesting as well that with the the second novel, because it's like, I wouldn't say, like, obviously, with, with who they was, who they was got long, long listed for the booker, which is like mad, isn't it? Like, I didn't yeah. expect that. And. I made it into like a whole page of the New York Times, which is yeah. like crazy and shit. And like, yeah. so those those things have kind of made me aware that like, okay, I'm I'm not just I'm not just having the average experience of a debut novelist in a yeah. sense. It, it like makes me yeah, aware no, that like, is. yeah, shit is popping for me. But I definitely don't feel recognised by the literary establishment at all. Like, so for a start, I went to Cheltenham Literary Festival the other day. That's the first literary festival that's invited me to speak. Yeah? Uh, for, yeah. Fuck that's sake. the first literary festival that's invited me. And I think it's like, because they don't know how to place me or people. I, obviously, I don't want to theorise too much because I'm not into like, you know, being conspiratorial about it. But I do get this strong sense that, for example, if I was writing about just sex, right? Yeah then they'd accept it because no one wants to critique you for sex. But writing about ultra-violence is a different thing. Yeah. Writing about ultra-violence, quote, unquote. They, they actually think you're good. You know, I've this with train spots, but they actually think you're physically going to attack them. Yeah. On in a visceral level. Yeah. You know, there's, a, there's a kind of fear of working class anger amongst the bourgeoisie. Yeah. They're always, you know. And the other thing is that they can't conceptualise. I mean, I, I'd, I'd done an MBA when I, just before I started train spotting. Yeah. You know, and they can't consider, it's like you doing a degree and doing, and simultaneously doing the drug yeah. deal and all. They can't conceptualise something that doesn't fit in to a very kind of narrow trajectory of how they believe people should be. Yeah, you know, course. And anything that's a bit too complex, they, they oh, won't know how to put you, they won't know how to present you, basically. Do you present them with a bunch of ponces talking literature and chin stroking on the panel? Yeah. Do you present them with a bunch of urban kind of sort of angry urban punk writers and all that? So yeah. they'll just be confused as to who you are. And that's a great thing. Yeah, I mean, it is a great it. thing. It's like, if someone asks me, if if I get invited to an event or something and they're like, you know, the dress code is smart, wear a suit and tie, it's like, fuck that. I'm turning up in a Nike tracksuit with my diamond grills in. <laughs> but I'm also going to fucking quote Heidegger off the top of my head. And they're just, they're just not ready for this smoke, yeah. innit? You know, Heidegger, funnily enough, I, I mentioned Heidegger. Heidegger said this amazing thing about um, how the nature of art is the truth of being setting itself to work. And that to me is like 
the the one kind of principle for creating art as in the truth of being and the truth of being is sometimes yeah. ugly fucked up provocative um i hate this word but triggering as well yeah. like but life is triggering yes you know? and the thing as well is that like in terms of me being accepted by the literary establishment sometimes i perceive it as something that I, I, you know, I wonder why I'm not accepted by it. And other times I actually feel almost relieved by it because there's a lack of expectation from me. There's a lack of pressure. I can still be myself. Like I can still explore, um, you know, pushing the boundaries of literature, pushing the boundaries of my own expression and, and kind of being true to myself. Well, fuck me. It's so good that you exist and people like you because I was getting a bit lonely. I thought it was the last, <laughs> I it was the last uh, dying breed, basically. Nah, 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 nah. I'm here to carry it on, Urban. Shit. <laughs> Have you ever have you ever written kind of a load of stuff and you just thought, nah, this is fucking not working, this is shit? Like, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like, funnily enough, like... I mean, I think I think all writers. First of all, I think all writers when they start have to write a bunch of shit. Yeah, like they definitely. have to write a bunch of short stories or, or not whatever. just when That's they start, shit. mate. Not just. <laughs> 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 oh, no, a lot of writers write shit all their lives, isn't it? But like, <laughs> now, nah, but as in, like you know, any anyone, everyone's first attempts at writing. Also, it's like every single writer who's read books, who's who's been inspired by reading, will start off by being derivative to some yeah. to some extent. And it's like, it's only when you shed the influences of the masters of your inspirations that you actually find your own voice and you have to be like confident and brave about that basically. But um, I remember I've only written one piece ever of, of like nonfiction. It was an article about the kind of how people have fetishized public housing um, and how to me, public housing is actually a place that reflects all the aspects of humanity. So not just the darker side of, of poverty, gang culture, crime and deprivation, but also hope and mm. resilience and family identity belonging. Like there's, it's, it's a microcosm of like the human experience. And I wrote this piece for, uh, for Lit Hub in America. Right. Um, and I kind of, I talked about, you know, South Kilburn and, and who they was. And I talked about the Cabrini Green housing projects in, yeah, in Chicago, the film Candyman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how like in Candyman is this place that's othered. And I talked about the film Latin. I talked about Nas rapping about Queensbridge houses. I and mean, you know, the, the, the whole history of Cabrini Green is fucking horrendous. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Basically, it's just a site. They, they decided that the north side was going to be white. The south side was going to be black. And the West Side was going to be Latin. Yeah. And they yeah. just, you know, the cities decided that. And they basically just fucking tore down this place and moved it, moved all the black people there to the South Side. To the South Side. Yeah. No, no, that's, it's proper fucked. But with this, with this piece, it's like when I read it back. So I wrote this piece. I think it's like a, a, a decent piece, but it's not the way that I talk. And yeah. when I read it back, I felt there was this like, almost this academic tone, almost this attempt as if I was attempting to to fulfill someone else's expectations that a piece like yeah. this should be written in a more conventional way. And I, I, don't, I don't like it. I think it's shit, basically. I think the ideas that are there are good because they are my yeah. personal feelings, but yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's, diff it's like um, when you come from the kind of background that you or I come from, it's like when you're, when you're asked to do journalism, you know, there's a there's a kind of voice, there's a standard voice, it's a standard English yeah. kind of sort of voice again, and that becomes quite difficult. I mean, I can I got more into when I when I went to America, I kind of had to speak a little bit more sort of. Um, well, I have to do here as well because nobody fucking understands me in London basically, if, uh, but but I have to um, 
have to speak a bit uh, a bit slower and a bit you know and I had this kind of this weird transatlantic accent that was coming. Yeah. I just thought, oh fucking hell, you know. And I thought, just embrace it, like you know, yeah, suddenly yeah. You know, you're just you're just get, get, and um, but you know, but as soon as you come back, you're in the you know, as soon as you get in the taxi, you leave, the, you get off the plane, your voice just reverts back to normal again, yeah. like you know? yeah, and. Um, but I would go, you know, I would go into the local, the, the, the boozer and sit down with all my mates and they'd all be looking at me, you know, that's intense, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's always, they wait to see if you've changed in some way, you know, and obviously they've changed, everybody changes, like, you know, but they've got that intense, like, you know. Um, so I always, always say something to get, to break the ice and say, Hey guys, I'm gonna to go to the restrooms, you know, and <laughs> the fucking restroom, you can't fucking, you know. So the, the, the tension goes, and then, yeah, start, and then you can just start sort of um, acting normal. Basically. But I find that yeah. interesting. Like, I wonder what you think about that with Americans, because it's like I find it mad interesting how we absorb so much American culture. We watch American films, we listen to American music, we never fucking complain about their accents or anything being difficult to understand. I remember going into a, a bodega in, in Mott Haven in the Bronx when I was in New York in February um, 2020 and I asked for a bottle of water and they were like, literally like, what? And I was like, bottle of water? And and then I was like, oh, I've got to say a bottle of water. A bottle like, of bottle water. Of water. <laughs> like, yeah, you, and it was like, right, like, because they don't drop their teas the same way yeah. we do, innit? But, yeah. but it's just strange. I always find that. And they, they have that attitude about our films in particular. Like there's some amazing English films that have come out in recent years that, that I think were incredible works of of cinema and storytelling. And and unless it's something historical, yeah. like for example, 1917, or for example, in TV, Downton Abbey, which is a kind of like idealistic fetishization of English upper-class aristocratic culture, which to me yeah. is bullshit. Like generally they don't engage with our shit because they're like, oh, the funny accents. They want like, you know, they want it to wow. be, they want it to be their kind of rat's history, don't they? They want it to be like, kind of this is before, you know, it's like kind of anything over three hundred years, anything three hundred years back. Yeah, it's always like theirs. They've appropriated it. So the the BBC knock out these costume dramas for yeah. us. So you know, so this is you know this is where we came from. You yeah, know? which yeah. is like disrespectful to about fucking you know ninety nine percent American heritage. Well, not about maybe about eighty percent of Americans because most most Americans didn't come from kind of Britain or even Western Europe like you know of course of course yeah I mean it's like Chicago I think at one point had a higher population of Poles than Warsaw yeah like, yes. you know what I mean yeah. it's like yeah yeah which is like interesting and I think about that though some but you know sometimes as well in in terms of that heritage and the identity of heritage I find when I've had interviews and conversations with journalists and they they're like you know your parents were Polish immigrants and um, my parents got asylum here um, when they came here in, in 1980 from, they came here just before the imposition of martial law. Right. So they right. escaped the communist regime. Yeah. Right. And when they left the country, obviously it was like very difficult to leave the country anyway. So, you know, they were expected to come back and luckily, you know, thankfully the, the British government gave them um, asylum. But then sometimes when I've had these interviews with journalists and they want to put this this emphasis on my background and, and the immigrant identity, I'm kind of like, bro, like, just like leave that shit out right now. Cause it's like, I don't need that edge. You don't need to put that edge of the immigrant experience onto me just to make me interesting. Sometimes I think it's this they're, fetishized they're fascinated thing. by it, aren't right. they? It's like, yeah. that's the, the kind of, um, 
the the, so the liberal bourgeoisie are fascinated by the the immigrant experience. It's their kind of stamp a little credibility, isn't it? Yeah. It's like you know, it makes them feel good that you know they've kind of it's, it's a, a patronizing kind of thing. You know? Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. I mean, it's it's interesting as well because I definitely feel Polish, like in terms of a cultural identity and a cultural heritage. I definitely feel Polish, but I also feel British. But I also feel like. I actually want to move after I went to New York in February, I actually fell in love with the city. Like I felt this incredible, this this energy, this like fifth gear energy that really connected yeah, yeah. to so my natural energy. A, yeah. And it's like, I feel like I can go there and, and be myself and like, I can, I can connect and find roots or put down roots in different places. Whereas I think often here it's like, there's this attempt to like categorize you and find, or or rather to define your identity for you. Yes, like, yes. And it's sometimes like, raw, like you don't know anything yeah. about me. Like, and also there's this ridiculously unhealthy obsession with class in Britain. Like, and that's not to say that there aren't class, often we talk about the obsession with class in Britain as if there's no such thing in any other country. There are class systems in every single country across the world. But there's this strange like obsession with trying to put people into into a, a class system as if that makes them, you know, more understandable, more comprehensible. Gabriel, it's been a unmitigated pleasure, brother. Yeah, it's been banging talking to you. Mate. It's been really great. This podcast was produced with Frontier Podcasts. It was edited by Nathan Copeland and the music was created by David Cantello. Be sure to visit theface.com for a daily dose of pop culture coverage. Mm -hmm.